0: There's a wedding theme in the book of John. He introduces it early in his gospel, and it includes a complicated mix of Old Testament references and thematic suggestions. But why would John include a wedding theme? Because Jesus is getting married. All that and more in this week's episode. Welcome to episode four, the wedding theme in John 2. I'm Greg Hall and I'm excited about what this week has in store. We're rethinking Scripture in new and different ways, and I'm glad you're joining us. I want to remind everyone that at Rethinkingscripture.com we've got a full Bible study on the book of John. It's already there, it's ready for your use. It includes Bible lessons. It includes teaching videos. You can listen to the audio if you want to. There's even links for extra material if you're not done when the study's over. You can go out and research more yourself. All that at RethinkingScripture.com. I'm not going to cover a lot of what's covered in that study. Today's something a little bit different. John introduces a wedding theme in his writings. We talked about how interconnected John's writings were in the introduction to John in episode two. But today, what we're going to talk about is the wedding theme that John puts together. It's a complicated theme. It concludes late in the book of Revelation, where Jesus gets married. But here in the beginning of John, John is setting up Jesus as a groom. And it's a complicated mess that starts at the end of chapter 1. It carries into chapter 2, where obviously there's a miracle done at a wedding. And then John the Baptist introduces some more in chapter 3. And then he meets a woman at a well in chapter 4. In the last episode, we looked at the unique perspective that many of the people in the Gospels that meet Jesus, they're already saved through their faith in the revelation of God in the Old Testament. Last time I spent some time in Acts chapter 19 looking at the John the Baptist disciples who, 30 years after the resurrection, still hadn't heard about Jesus. Well, that's one extreme for sure. But here at the end of chapter 1 of John, we have the other extreme. Jesus probably didn't spend a ton of time hanging out in the wilderness with John the Baptist. We read about a few incidents. but This is a chance for us to get to see how John's disciples respond to Jesus and transfer their faith from the Old Testament promise of a Messiah to the actual person fulfilling that role. We often think of them as unsaved prior to meeting Jesus, that they come to an initial faith, but that's not what's happening here. So let's rethink that premise. I'm just going to dive into John chapter 1, verse 35. And it says, again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples. So this is John the Baptist. He's got disciples following him around. They're coming and going as life allows them to, right? And there's two disciples with him on this particular day. And Jesus walks by and he looks and he says, behold, the Lamb of God. Okay, lots of themes coming together from the Old Testament in that statement alone. The two disciples hear him speak, and they follow Jesus. And then Jesus has a little conversation with them, decides to invite them, to hang out with him for the day. And then in verse 40, we find out that one of the two disciples that heard John speak and followed Jesus that day was Andrew, Peter's brother, Simon Peter's brother. Okay, where's Simon Peter at this time? Not quite sure, doesn't really say. Maybe he's up in Galilee fishing because they had a fishing business, a family. Not everybody can just take off, right? But what the text does say is that Andrew first found his brother, Simon. Now get this. What's the first thing Andrew says to his brother? We have found the Messiah. The first thing you should be noticing there is that they were looking for the Messiah. Who is it that looks for the Messiah? Well, the people that believe the Messiah is coming. And who are those people? Those people are the people that have read the Old Testament and have in faith believed. Other people don't even really care about the Messiah. I mean, we see that in Jesus' birth in the other Gospels. Herod's less than five miles away from Bethlehem, and he doesn't even care enough to go to Bethlehem and go see this child that had been born. So we've got these two John the Baptist followers, disciples. They see Jesus. John says, go follow that guy. He's the Lamb of God. They do. They then go find other people that are looking for the same character, this Messiah character. Finds his brother and brings his brother to Jesus. And what happens? Well, verse 42, he brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, This is maybe redacted a little bit. John might not be including the whole interchange, but what he decided to include in this gospel is the very first thing that Jesus does. He doesn't have a conversation. Hey, how are you doing? What's your name? Jesus already knows this guy's name. He says, you are Simon, son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which translated is Peter. So Peter gets a new name. Uh, You might think that happens all the time, But God doesn't rename people very often. Uh, It's a short list. You got Abraham and Sarah in the Old Testament. Jacob gets renamed. There's not too many times that people get renamed. Everybody that gets renamed prior to this, they're already people of faith. Simon is already a man of faith. He's expecting to see the Messiah. His brother says we found him. He follows him. And the very first thing that Messiah does, by the way, that Messiah is God himself who can see into the very soul of men. He renames him, sets him apart. So Andrew, after hanging out with Jesus for a day, brings his brother to Jesus. Jesus immediately renames him, and then they go on down the road. And it says in verse forty-four: Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathaniel and said to him, "Listen to the messages they're giving each other. The first one, we found the Messiah. Second one, right here, Philip talking to Nathaniel." we have found him of whom moses in the law and also the prophets wrote jesus of nazareth the son of joseph verse 47 jesus saw nathaniel coming to him and said to him now listen to this again john is choosing to present just like when simon came there's no banter back and forth there's no getting to know each other here jesus sees nathaniel and immediately says behold An Israelite indeed. What does that even mean? Well, a true Israelite is one that enters into the covenant of faith with the God of Israel. He's a true Israelite. And then there's a cryptic statement. And this is where our marriage wedding theme is introduced in the book of John. Behold an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. It's a head nod. And it's a head nod to an Old Testament character. Jacob is renamed Israel in the Old Testament. Jacob is the first Israelite in that sense. And Jacob, if you know his story, he was a trickster. But here we have Nathaniel, an Israelite, a true Israelite, in whom there is no deceit. In Jacob, there was deceit. But here is a true Israelite, in whom there's no deceit. It's a head nod to the story of Jacob. Nathanael goes on to say, Rabbi, you're the son of God. You are the king of Israel. A very quick recognition for who he is. A recognition that you would expect from somebody that's already a person of faith. And Jesus answered and said to him, and here's uh, there's a couple tricky things going on here. Verse 51, and he said to him, so Jesus is still talking to him, but when he talks to him, he's using plural use. Truly, truly, I say to you, you all, you all will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. That's the second head nod to this Old Testament character of Jacob. And if you look at your cross references for the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man at the end of verse 51, you're going to see a cross reference for Genesis 28, 12 in the middle of the Jacob story of the Old Testament. In Genesis 28, he's on his way out of town And he stops. He has a dream about a ladder. And our English says ladder. It's probably more like a ziggurat. Genesis 28, 12. And there was a ladder set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And that's the reference to Jacob at the end of chapter one, in the discussion that Jesus is having with Nathaniel. Except there's a difference. In Jesus' statement, the angels of God are ascending and descending on the Son of Man, not a ladder. Jesus, in other words, becomes that thing that connects heaven and earth. He becomes the new Bethel. He is the new house of God here on earth. And you might be saying, I can see the head nods to Jacob, but we're at the end of chapter one and you haven't shown me anything that's a wedding theme yet. That's because we don't know our Old Testament stories very well. We know individual stories, but we don't connect them very well because where's the next place that Jacob goes in the Jacob story after his dream or his vision at Bethel? If you go to chapter 29, what you find is Jacob goes to a foreign land. He meets a woman at a well. It's at high noon, and that is Rachel he ends up marrying. The angels ascending and descending on a latter vision that Jacob had is in the narrative where he finds a wife. And John, the author of the fourth gospel, is using that Old Testament story to set up a similar story that he's going to tell about Jesus, a man in search of a bride. John 4, Jesus will travel to a distant land. It's a theologically distant land. It's one where Jews don't travel at all. It's Samaria and he too will meet a woman at a well and it's going to be at noon. And would you be surprised if she too is looking for the Messiah? She's expecting a Messiah. Now her theology is all screwed up. but if you were to go in Jesus day to the mountain that you were supposed to go to to worship God, The theology there was all screwed up too. The scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees had created a new worship that wasn't of the one true God. We have these two nods to the story of Jacob at the end of chapter one. Then what happens in chapter two? It's Jesus's first miracle at Cana. And what type of event was that? It was at a wedding. Do you remember the circumstances? They run out of wine and Jesus's mother comes to him. They have no wine. And Jesus' answer has, well, it's been interpreted a number of different ways, and I think there's probably a lot of different ways you could read it. I'm going to suggest that when he says, my hour has not yet come, what he is essentially saying is, why is this my problem? (laughs) I'm not responsible for supplying the wine at this wedding. It's not my wedding. Which supposes what? That Jesus will have a wedding. John is building in an expectation he's establishing a theme. So we get the two early nods at the end of chapter one. We get the wedding theme continued and built upon in chapter two. And then in John chapter three, verse 29, we have a statement by John the Baptist. And what does he say? Well, in the midst of a discussion about how many people were coming to him to be baptized versus following Jesus, he says, he who has the bride is the bridegroom, but the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly because of the bridegroom's voice. So this joy of mine has been made full. And what John has done with this statement is he's brought in the imagery, the theme of a wedding, and he's attached two different characters to that. First, he says, he who has the bride. So let's just ask the question, who's the bride? The bride, technically, within the immediate context, is those that come to Jesus and accept him as Messiah. That's the bride. And he who has the bride is the bridegroom. And that's confusing because we don't use that terminology except here in the Bible. We just say groom. He who has the bride is the groom. And John the author is taking John the Baptist's statement and building on the wedding theme as we go through his book. All this leads to chapter 4, where Jesus meets the woman at the well and replays the story of Jacob. Now, he doesn't literally get married to the woman at the well. I'm not trying to say that Jesus literally got married. I'm saying he literarily got married. He thematically got married. John, the author, is presenting Jesus as a groom in search of his bride in much the same way that the story played out for Jacob in the Old Testament. So in John chapter 2, the wedding, let's just revisit that just to cover a little bit more ground. Weddings were multi-day events in biblical times. We don't know how many days this particular one in chapter 2 lasted, but we should acknowledge that the story has been condensed. So for instance, in John chapter 2, verse 3, when the wine ran out, we don't know if this was on the first day of the wedding or a subsequent day of the celebration. And then in verse 4, Jesus says, woman, what does that have to do with us? That's the NASB way of translating that. And for the most part, you just need to know that it's a Hebrew idiom. So what's an idiom? An idiom is something, the example I always give is it's raining cats and dogs. Okay. In our culture, that group of words has a particular meaning. And pretty much anybody in our culture is going to understand it if you say, oh, look outside, it's raining cats and dogs. But the literal words don't have anything to do with the actual meaning. If we were to do word searches and try and deduce what the idiom in our culture means, we're going to come up short because we're, we're going to have pictures of felines and my too many schnauzers uh, falling from the sky. And that's, that's not at all what that's about. And the first part of the statement that Jesus gives is a Hebrew idiom. And I think the NASB does a decent job of saying, what does that have to do with us? The fact that there's no more wine at this wedding, what does that have to do with us? And then he says, and my hour has not yet come. And John uses a lot of hour or time references later in his gospel. I'm just going to list off a few. In John 7, 2 through 30, there's a similar request made by Jesus's brothers to go up to a festival in full public view to fully show himself. And he references about his time is not yet come. In John 7, uh, 6 and 8, he literally says, my time has not yet come. In 7.30, he says, no man laid his hand on him because his hour had not yet come. The author does. In John 8.20, no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. In John 12.23, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. 12.27, shall I say, Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. John 13.1, Jesus knowing that his hour had come. John 13, 31, John 16, 32, John 17, 1. So we see John using this idea of Jesus's hour or his time. And that's what the reference is back in chapter 2. My hour has not yet come. It's not time for me to go to my hour, which literally ends up being his crucifixion, his resurrection, his ascension to glory. Those events packaged together, beginning with his crucifixion, that is the beginning of his hour. You can also take that statement that Jesus makes and interpret it as, this is not my wedding. The events that lead to my crucifixion, death, burial, resurrection, and glorification, that will be the beginning of my wedding. That's what Jesus is saying. But this is not my wedding, and I will have a wedding. It's at the end of Revelation that the wedding takes place, that the new Jerusalem comes out of heaven. A group of people pulled from the Horish Babylon and made ready as a bride for her husband. In the next episode, we dive into John chapter 3. We've already discussed a little bit about what John the Baptist says, But Jesus has an encounter with an interesting character in John chapter 3. It's Nicodemus. And would you be surprised if I said he was a believer? All that and more on the next Rethinking Scripture podcast.